for three years, uh, we lived on $24,000 a year. And I had a, I had a, a, my first kid had just been born and my wife wasn't working. And, and so it's like, we're pretty motivated to make it work. And, and it, and it took a while. Uh, but, uh, it was great. You know, to a large degree, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. That was Ken Morris describing what the early days of fly water travel were really like. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. I would love it if you could uh, take a second and leave some feedback, or if you have a question for the show, you can check in here. Uh, if you go to wetflyswing.com speak, you can leave a voice message uh, for either a question for the show or a comment about what we have going. It'd be great to hear from you. Ken Morris is here to share the fly water travel story and get into some tips on designing flies with a focus on dry flies. We find out which are his top six go-to flies. We hear about the influence of Dave uh, Whitlock and Mark Bale on the direction of his journey. Then we hear the difference between uh, what uh, going places and knowing places is all about. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Angler's Coffee roasts a full range of coffees with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. And I'm one of those anglers who's been loving Angler's Coffee. Great tasting, robust, and good to go. They just released a new subscription program, and you can get 20% off of this box and all products at anglerscoffee.com. Just use the coupon code WETFLYSWING at checkout to get 20% off of great coffee today. That's anglerscoffee.com. We're also brought to you by... In today's world of mass-produced products, Stonefly Nets has reclaimed the tradition of handcrafted care with their custom wood landing nets. Stonefly's goal is to create a unique custom classic wood net that are second to none in quality and can be customized for a little extra touch. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly to get started today. That's wetflyswing.com slash stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y, to get started right now. Uh, lots on travel and dry flies today, so without further ado, here is Ken Morish from flywatertravel.com. How's it going, Ken? Hey, it's good. Good to have you on here. We, uh, we've, I've been thinking about getting you on the show for quite a while. You're, um, you know, obviously flywater travel is a big name out there in the space. You've designed a lot of amazing flies. You've got a big background. In fact, I talked to somebody recently, a guide who said, uh, we maybe get into this, but said, you're a hell of a great fisherman as well so you've got a lot of accolades uh behind you but um maybe just talk about before we get there you know before you got to fly water how did you first get into fly fishing uh you know we kind of joke that it's the mutant gene in my family so you know my dad was really into it his father was really into it and even one generation before sort of the first one of the moorishes that got born in the u.s was born in a little uh mining town, uh, hard rock gold mining town in the Sierra Nevadas in California. And he was sort of the first to get into it. And, uh, yeah, so we've always had something to talk about at our family gatherings and get togethers for, for multiple generations. And, you know, fortunately my family was 
sympathetic to the choices I made. You know, the the joke is I went and you know squandered a relatively expensive private school education. Uh, you know, and and went straight up to Alaska and became a fishing guide. Uh, but again, my family was was fairly sympathetic, and it fortunately worked out. That's awesome. And and what was the where was the private school education? I ended up uh, going to Lewis and Clark College, which I now refer to as Lewinsky and Clark College because she's our most famous graduate. Oh, oh, Lewinsky, actually, the uh, Monica. <laughs> yeah. And most people's <laughs> next question is, did you guys overlap while you were there? And the, the answer to that is no, I was, I'm was. i older than she is. Oh, there you go. See, that wasn't going to be my next question. My next question was, whenever I hear <laughs> the uh, private school people faltering on the private schools, I think of, for some reason, I think of Steve Jobs. And uh, I'm not sure if he did. He go to was it Lewis or Clark? What was his private school he went to? You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but he went to um, one of the ones. It was in Oregon. I, I don't know if it was Lewis and Clark or one of the the high end ones. And he basically went there for like six months and then dropped out and just partied. You know, kind of hung out and and like well, he didn't party necessarily, but hung out. And obviously, you know, he became kind of well known. So uh, <laughs> so I guess you don't have to actually um, you know complete something. Or did you complete your degree? Well, I did. And yeah, my other regret was, you know, actually completing it in four years. If I'd been smarter, I would have stayed longer because that yeah, was pretty fun. Yeah, it was a good time. It was a, it was a good time. And uh, yeah, I, I, I got an English major there. And uh, yeah, because I think that's a great, a great major for people who don't know what they want to do. That's right. That's right. You and uh, uh, John Gerock, he, he was on in a past episode. And <laughs> I asked him the same thing. I said, John, we were talking about college and he, he, he went through in like the 60s, right? In that period. And I asked him, you know, he said the same thing. He said, it's a great degree when you don't know what you, you want to do. You just kind of go for it. So, yeah. So I was, you know, so college. So you, you're at this, this private college uh, going to school there. And I'm assuming you're doing some fishing. How did you take it from the college that period into like a, a business in fly fishing or t- take us to that, you know, basically from there to, to into fly water travel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I did fish a, a fair amount in college, but not very effectively. And, you know, I, I, I went, I used to go steel fishing on the, the shoots and, uh, and the Sandy in particular, but I, I didn't really have any mentors. And so like basic principles, uh, like slowing the fly down, uh, I didn't really, no one had really explained that to me. So, you know, I could throw the, a teeny 300 across the river, but oh, what it was doing in the water wasn't that effective. But, you know, eventually I caught some nice steelhead at the late end of my education there. And, and that was one of the motivations of going to school up in Oregon and getting out of the Bay Area. Uh, but, uh, yeah, then I promptly... Uh, Packed up and got a job guiding in Alaska. And my first guide job up there was at a place called Bristol Bay Lodge. And, uh, you know, I was super green. I was really tough on the boats and equipment. But, you know, I was getting it done on the water. And so that was, uh, that was a, a fun chapter. And when I came back from guiding, I, I started working at uh, a fly shop in the Bay Area. There was a place called uh, Woolies Fly Fishing Outfitters, and he had a downtown San Francisco store and one in Lafayette. 
And he, that later became an entity called Leland's uh, through a sale. And uh, and so, yeah, I worked there for a couple of years and I uh, started guiding in Northern California and teaching on water fishing classes and, you know, just being a standard, you know, fly shop rat and working behind the counter and selling stuff. And yeah, then I went back and did another season in Alaska at a different operation. And then I really thought I wanted to be a fly fishing rep thereafter. And I kind of joke that I, well, I pranced into Mark Bale's office at uh, Sage and I said, Hey, I really, I really want to be a rep for Sage. And he looked at me and he said, do you have any experience? And I said, uh, no, I have absolutely none. And he says, you know, that's really not going to do. And, uh, and so then I sort of, uh, flitted around with uh, another position at Sage that never came my way and that didn't work. And so I was sort of at a bit of a, a dead end there. I like to tell a story about Mark Bale because, you know, he and I are now on the sort of the far bank leadership team together and we have a, a wonderful friendship. So I've been really fortunate to get to know him later on in, in his career uh, as well. And, uh, and he's just, you know, such an interesting character. I don't know if you've done uh, a podcast with him, but uh, yeah, he's, he's the best connected fly fisherman in the world and he's a hell of an angler and he's one of the, the most articulate and interesting guys you'll meet. And, you know, he's one of the, the guys who's, he's the smartest guy in the room and, and, uh, and he's a, he's a lot of fun. So yeah, I'd encourage you to pursue him and his career, which is spanning over 35 years, I think with, uh, Sage is, uh, about the sunset uh, this next October. So yeah, get get him while you can. He's a, he's a great guy. But, uh, when he had the good sense to not hire me, I, uh, I took my little, my first little venture out of the fly fishing space. Cause I was back living at home and I didn't have any income and my parents were pissed at me. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I got this job in outside sales trying to sell like water purification systems to large businesses that use bottled water. And I just pounded the shit out of the pavement and I never, ever made a single sale. Uh, and, uh, it was really frustrating. And then, uh, a sort of a connection from my past who I had become acquainted with through my old mentor, Andre Pouillons, uh, invited me to come work for him in Seattle. And he was a, a Japanese illegal alien who built super high-end custom fly rods. And they were with helical cores and they were made out of, you know, different sections were made out of different moduluses of graphites. And uh, we had, they had different feral designs for each connection. And, and so we handmade these these really interesting rods and then we exported them to Japan and you know back in the I don't know in the yeah, like in 1991 and stuff you know we were they, these things were selling for $1400 a piece uh, and uh, and most of the market was in Japan but we really handmade each one and uh and interestingly enough, 
through that job in in uh, search for components, uh, we contacted Struble, and that's uh, how I ended up meeting George Cook for the first time. And so George was coming by, and he was going to show us some real seats. And this guy I worked for, whose name was Hisatsugu Haneda, a.k.a. Uh, Henry Haneda, or as we like to call him, Dishenry. Uh, he uh, is really a bizarre individual and, and sort of a, a, sort of a, a crazy genius with uh, truly bizarre social skills. And so as opposed to just dropping this bomb on George, when we were waiting for George to come and show us the product, I I said, hey, George, I'm going to get in the elevator. I, I said to Henry, I said, Henry, I'm going to get in the elevator. I'm going to go down and meet George, and uh, and I'll bring him up. And he said, oh, that was a good idea. So I, I met George downstairs. We got in the elevator, and I just said, hey, George, I, I'm just warning you, you, this meeting you're going to go into is going to be bizarre because uh, Henry is bizarre. And he's like, all right, man, good enough. And and so we had uh, our meeting, and and. Henry always referred to Sage as uh, Seiji, you know, and he 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 no like Seiji Rod so much, you know, and and uh, and when he showed George Cook his rod, he'd only show him the butt section of it. He wouldn't let him, you know, flex it or anything like that. And, and so we did have a good bizarre meeting, and we we bought some components and we we built some rods with it, and that was all fine and dandy, but. Uh, that meeting with George Cook led to him calling me sometime later and saying, hey, there's a, a fellow who's opening a fly shop in Ashland, Oregon, and he's looking for a fly shop manager. And this guy named Steve Rowe, who, you know, uh, well, later went to become Carrie Berkheimer's primary financial backer. He called me down and we had a, a good meeting and as a result, I said, "Hey, if you know if you're interested in hiring me, uh, I'd really like you to consider my girlfriend working for the company as well." And so ultimately, we moved down to Ashland, Oregon, and I, I ran a fly shop there and a, a fly shop and an outdoor store, and you know taught classes and, and tying and on water classes and did a little side guiding. And so that was a, a, a sort of a nice tenure and got me to this incredible place where I live. And it was sort of dumb luck that, that led me here. And uh, and after about six years of that, I had an opportunity to to begin fly water travel. And, and that sort of happened on a chance meeting at a fly tackle dealer show, I became reacquainted with uh, a guy named Brad Jackson. And Brad Jackson was the co-founder of The Fly Shop in Redding, California. And he and Mike Michlack had started that store together. And after... 10 years of working together, they were no longer very fond of one another. And so they parted ways. And, and the short story is that Brad Jackson had to sign a, a 10 year non-compete clause. And at the end of that 10 year non-compete clause, uh, Brad was interested in reentering the fly fishing space in sort of a peripheral context 
and was most interested in in seeing a travel company start up. And so he called me and said, "Hey Ken, I want to uh, I want to see if you're interested in this idea of of starting a, a travel company." And I was interested in it, and I, I said to him right out of the gate, I said, "Hey, if we're going to do this, I need I need to bring in a partner because I have some of the skills that would be useful for these, but I I really lack a lot of the skills in terms of you know true business management and finance, and you know there's there's a lot of things I'm I'm really bad at, and uh, and so." He agreed to that, and and that's when I uh, there was one guy that I knew who'd been a, a fly fishing student of mine, but he was a, a peer and a friend, and had become a really close fishing buddy of mine, and that was this guy Brian Geese, and and Brian Geese was a, a industry outsider, but he's just the smartest and most practical guy that I know. And I said, "Hey, Brian." I said, "Did you, you know, would you consider starting this venture with me?" And he said, "Yep, I'm, I'm, I'm going to travel. I'm going to, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to travel around the world on the cheap. And when I get back, we'll do it." And so that was sort of the the origin of of Flywater Travel. And so he and I started it in a in a little. Uh, free space that this guy Steve Rowe who I used to work for loaned us and and we brought Steve Rowe in as a small minority partner and uh, he gave us you know free rent and uh and we scrounged together uh some startup capital from various sources any way that we could and uh yeah for for 3 years uh we lived on twenty four thousand dollars a year, and I had a I had a, a my first kid had just been born, and my wife wasn't working, and and so it's like we're pretty motivated to make it work, and and it and it took a while, uh, but uh, it was great, you know. To a large degree, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing, and. Uh, and what we had was sort of, you know, persistence and uh, adequate people skills and a passion for fishing. And, and, you know, we had writing and photography skills. And so we could create the marketing stuff. And, you know, certain people sort of spoke up for us and said, hey, these guys are going to do a good job. You should you should let them come see your operation. Let them come for a quick comp stay. And so we spent... Uh, I spent one year sort of half managing this outdoor store and fly shop and at the same time traveling all around the world and visiting with lodges and getting the images and the needed content and just establishing those business relationships. And we sort of really did that year and in 99 was the real traveling around year and then uh we came out with our first catalog in uh in 2000 and we've just been sort of jamming since then and you know now there's a uh, 12 of us full time and it's become a pretty thriving entity with you know 200 and 
30 destinations around the world that we represent and and a lot of really special close relationships with both clients and and outfitters yeah. alike. Yeah, that's a that's an amazing story. I, there's so many little uh side tangents I'd love to dig into. I I um you know, I mean now it's you guys pretty much. It's uh Yellow Dog, the Fly Shop. Uh, I mean there's only you're up there I mean with the, a few of the big ones, right? I mean does it feel like I mean, obviously you put in, I'm not sure how many years that takes us to get to where you are now, but, um, <laughs> does it feel like, uh, I mean, what does it feel like when you look back at that whole story you just told him it, it's been some work and along the way, but it sounds like the connections you've made have been, you think that's been the most important thing along the way? Yeah. You know, I think that we built this business, uh, in a very different fashion than, than the the other folks in the space and and so and, and today you know in light of the pandemic and uh, uh things like that we're we're really grateful for the way that we built the company and so we really built it on personal relationships you know uh and, and treating people right you know treating other people the way we want to be treated uh, and that applied to both outfitters and customers and and so we do have really strong personal relationships and i'd say that you know when it comes to outfitters we really are trying to help them achieve their goals and and trying to hold on to things loosely we're not really a very power over type company we're sort of a hey let's let's partner together and, and get some stuff done that's that's good for all of us and and so yeah what is interesting is in we're not a promotional company either uh, historically and so we have you know we printed more catalogs in our first five years of business than we print today and you know really our marketing and promotional budget has hardly changed over 20 years and so we were a, a pretty profitable company and uh and two and a half years ago we sold the company to Farbank Enterprises and so you know Farbank owns Sage Rio and Reddington and they'd come knocking on our door maybe eight or nine years ago as well and uh we we were sort of taken aback and weren't ready to do that and hadn't accomplished much of of what we had hoped to accomplish but this next time they came knocking we we gave it some really serious consideration and eventually struck a deal and Brian and I still run the company today and it's exciting now because you know now we do have the opportunity to take advantage of of some really low hanging promotional fruit that that we just hadn't done in the past you know we never purchased ads we never sponsored film festivals we never paid for a click online uh we never did any of those things and we didn't need to we got all of our business through referral and repeat and you know and we grew into one of the the biggest players in the space super organically without forcing our hand and so now we still have that strength of relationships and we also have you know some some additional marketing and promotional firepower behind us 
And we were able to, you know, withstand the pandemic with a, a really complete staff here, which was a, a big blessing that Farbank brought to the table for us. So that's been a, a good chapter. And uh, yeah, you know, looking back on it, uh, yeah, it's funny looking back on it, but I'd say, you know, yeah, we worked hard and we did we did the right thing most of the time. And uh and you know we got lucky and and worked with good people and you know so we've we've gotten some good lucky breaks uh, and, and I think a lot of that also has to do with just yeah. treating people yeah, right. That's cool. I, I love that you mentioned that back in George Cook and I just chatted with him this morning uh, on a podcast and uh, you know it's always fun. He's always got a good perspective on things. Uh, it's interesting. I look at you mentioned the back to that outside sales job where you didn't sell anything. I mean. You know, you didn't sell anything there, but you had to eventually sell, uh, you know, Flywater, right? A product. How, how did you, did you actually get into like embracing the sales and get better at it? Or how did that all go? Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, we, we weren't looking to sell the company. And, and so we were really approached. And so I wouldn't say that there was any salesmanship uh, per se involved in, 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 in the transaction transition to Farbank, I would just say that uh, you know our salesmanship. I'd say was we've been practicing it all along, and we made a valuable company with that. So you know we got we're we're good salespeople, and you know yeah sure there's some 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 pitching and posturing in the in the process of selling the business, but you know it, it's not like the the big lie of a, a you know IPO or something like that where you're really blowing a lot of smoke up someone's ass uh, it, it's a it was a pretty straightforward deal you know the numbers are the numbers and you know it, it's not like a service business has this enormous amount of blue sky you know if you sell widgets or something like that you know the the sales price can be really really high and for a service company it's just different and and, and so yeah i wouldn't say that that there was a a lot no. of pitch well, what, in that and what about your selling to just you know as you're starting out with flywater the first few years you were i mean you were having to find people right and and sell your essentially your product yeah yeah, and so that really was relationally built too. So you know, the origins of our company were a very meager amount of startup capital uh, that that Brian and I came up with, and so it was really back to personal relationships. So I had a lot of relationships uh, from you know my I don't know six or seven years only in the industry there, and and I was already active with. Uh, you know, writing articles and doing images and things like that. So I, I leveraged that. And then, you know, we really built our list the hard way. When we got one customer, we said, hey, you got any friends that we can send our catalog to? So we did a lot of personal letters. We did a, a lot of catalog mailings to, to individuals with, with personalized cover letters and a lot of follow-up. And we literally asked all the people that we knew for any of the people that they knew. And so we built a really high quality list that way. And we had some customers, you know, that would come through and give us a list of 20 fishing buddies. And, uh, and so, so that's, that's how we built it. And we, and so we made a lot of what I would say would be, uh, warm, 
or lukewarm sales calls where, yep, we sent the catalog to someone and then we followed up with a phone call and introduced ourselves. And that was, that was scary. I still remember, you know, back in the day, we'd have little, you know, cue notes on our computer about, you know, different talking points. And, and Brian and I worked together in a very small space. And so we would sort of absorb one another's sales styles and knowledge. And so, you know, uh, I, I had a lot of words for describing fisheries and fishing experiences and, and Brian, you know, would, would adopt those and modify those. And then he had a lot of tactics for tracking people because he, he had a background in sales. He was a, uh, a window and doors, uh, and door salesman for a, you know, a wood product company called Anderson windows and doors. And so, so he, he had more, true sophisticated sales experience than I did and so together you know we just learned from each other and uh and went for it and like I say we didn't know much about what we were doing and uh out of the gate but you know the very first guys that ever wrote us a check to go to Christmas Island that was the first trip we ever sold officially uh they they're still customers of ours today and and we see them around town and uh, yeah uh, Steve Haskell and Peter Ware and and so that was that was great and you know we had a lot of interesting growing pains throughout the process. I remember when, when Brian said, Hey man, you know, I think we need to create an itinerary for every trip that we sell. And I was like, are you kidding me? That's crazy. That's, that's way too much work. We can't do that. And, 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 you know, so to look back on all these, these different steps that we made to improve the business, uh, you know, that that's kind of impressive for me in hindsight. And I've, I'd say a lot of that's really driven by my partner, Brian. You know, he's he's not scared of change and he's really into improving the business for the customer. And so uh, with, with his sort of uh, confidence and foresight, we were able to continue to grow and adapt. And uh, I'm really, really grateful for everything that he brings to that's the table. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, and you mentioned the referrals and follow-ups. I mean, that's, I was just listening to a podcast where a, uh, a sales, I can't remember her name. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's pretty famous sales uh, gal. And, and she mentioned that she, she says, she was saying that like 80% of your lead should be coming from referrals, right? Instead of the, instead of the cold call. I mean, so I think <laughs> yeah. you guys were already yeah. doing, that's the basic thing is that I think business is actually kind of easy, right? You, you provide a good product and you provide great service. Yeah. And, uh, and it sounds like you, you guys did that and you knew some people and, and build a cool company, which is a great story. Yeah, but yeah, no, it's been, and, and, uh, more than 80% of our business has been grown on, on client referral, repeat and referral. And, and so, uh, yeah, that, that broad reaching marketing, you know, you know, you know, the fly shop in Reading, you know, they, they had this incredible catalog business that, uh, that would really feed their travel. But, you know, they, there have been years when they've, sent out, you know, more than 300,000 catalogs. And, uh, and so, you know, that's a, that's a real different stream that feeds them. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, we've accomplished 
all that the other companies have done and and, and more in cases, uh, but just through a really different channel. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. In today's world of mass-produced products, Stonefly Nets has reclaimed the tradition of handcrafted care with their custom wood landing nets. Stonefly starts the design process by selecting wood for the handle based on a number of key factors, including grain pattern and depth, but they don't stop there. This piece of art is accentuated by strips of hardwood that complement and accentuate the handcrafted handle. To be honest, I have never been much of a net guy, uh, mainly because I didn't feel like my collapsible net was the easiest to use or was uh, easy on the eye, if you know what I mean. Uh, the Stonefly net not only looks beautiful, but has high quality netting that is easy on the fish and will last for years to come. Stonefly's goal is to create a unique classic wood net that is second to none and that can be customized for a little extra touch. For Ethan, the founder of Stonefly Nets, fly fishing has always had a traditional feel going back to fishing the three-weight bamboo rod with his great-grandmother. When Ethan designs a custom net, it's his hope that others will create these amazing lasting memories as well. Please head over to wetflyswing.com stonefly to get your custom net. That's wetflyswing.com stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y, to get started right now. What's worse than a day with no bites, a day without coffee, or even worse, a day with bad coffee? Thankfully, that isn't the case for us. With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee Team roasts a full range of coffees with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every angler. That's why they've released a brand new coffee subscription program made just for you. Just visit anglerscoffee.com, provide your coffee preferences, your mailing address, and how much coffee you drink in a week, and they'll take care of the rest. There's no obligations or hidden fees, just great coffee delivered to your front door. And I've been using and loving Angler's Coffee recently, and I am what most people would consider a coffee fanatic and is what pretty much keeps this podcast going strong. Uh, so yeah, join me in supporting uh, this great company who supports great coffee, fly fishing, and conservation. As part of Angler's Conservation Alliance, Angler's Coffee will be donating a portion of every sale to help conserve and protect our natural habitats. Right now, they're raising money for Soul River, which brings veterans and inner-city youth out to the river to teach conservation, fishing skills, and much more. Right now, you can get 20% off your first subscription box or gift box. Simply use the code WETFLYSWING at checkout. Just visit anglerscoffee.com and get 20% off your first subscription box or gift box using WETFLYSWING at checkout. That's anglerscoffee.com. And now back to our show. Well, this has been awesome. The, the, the feet or the summary here has been great. We could obviously dig into more, but I did want to touch on uh, a little bit on some of your fly patterns because you not only have, um, you know, what you have going there with fly water, but you've designed plenty of flies. Uh, so yeah, maybe we can just start. We're, we're kind of in a dry fly season talking about dry flies. And I know off air, we talked a little bit about some of your patterns and maybe we can just start this, start this off with, you know, when you think of your patterns, I'm not sure. How many do you think you have you've designed that are actually out that people could buy in a catalog somewhere? Yeah, well, that number has uh, has fluctuated. You know, I used uh, I originally started out being a fly designer for uh, a company called Idlewild, and and that was a really great run. Uh, and then that uh, 
that company imploded. And uh, at that time, I transitioned to Umqua Feather Merchants, uh, and that's where uh, I designed for them at this point, and that's great also. Uh, and I don't know, I've, I probably... I've probably had, you know, maybe 40 different patterns out in the commercial market, and some have really thrived, and some have been discontinued, and 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 in many cases there'll be, you know, multiple uh, sizes and or color schemes of different patterns. So yeah, I've done done a lot of stuff in in a lot of different categories. Uh, I probably, you know, uh, I, I probably came out of the gate strongest in, in being a trout nymph tire, but uh, but over time, and well, I do steelhead and saltwater stuff and jungle stuff, and I've designed designed all that. Uh, you know, trout flies is where the money's at, and so that that's uh, that's the stream that I've most uh, closely followed. And, uh, yeah, I'd say my, but I'd say my most well-recognized and best-selling flies, uh, happen to be dry flies. And, uh, you know, I say starting with the Moorish mouse, which is a unconventional dry fly, uh, you know, that's a well-recognized fly and, and, you know, it doesn't sell as many units as a chubby Chernobyl, but it, uh, it it's a good one. And then my, my very best-selling dry fly is something called the Moorish Hopper, which is a, a foam bug. And that, uh, that, that, that's, that was kind of a, a funny story of, of developing that. And I can go into that if you like. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. On. Before we get there, I just want to talk in, uh, briefly. So you mentioned the chubby Chernobyl that, that was not your pattern. I wish, but that was uh, that 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 was uh, my great friend Chris Conaty's pattern. He worked for Idlewild, and he created that fly, but he created it as a uh, as an employee of the company, as opposed to being a royalty tire. And so he he is a sort of a unsung hero, and and he's created what maybe the single best-selling dry fly in America, uh, but without the benefit of having that backed up by a royalty contract. And uh, But I worked very closely with Chris uh, at Idlewild, and yeah, he's a great guy and a great tire. And uh, yeah, so I, I think highly of him and his work. So foam... Foam is not dead. Foam is still good. To... Well, yeah, and so that's uh, that's sort of a preview of the of the, the 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 hopper story. So, you know, I a lot of times I look and see if there are gaps in the market of what what the the fly market needs. And and when embarking on that, I was like, man, none of the grasshoppers out there on the market met my standards in terms of what I thought a grasshopper should look like. And I, I feel like a lot of people go into fly tying with the assumption that they understand what the natural looks like. And then they go and they create a pattern based off of their their image of of what the natural is. And when I looked at 
true grasshoppers and I looked at grasshopper flies, I'm like, no, none of them, none of them have it right. And so I, I caught a number of different grasshoppers and I stuck pins through them and I kept them, uh, you know, on right beneath my fly tying light, just stabbed into my, my countertop there. And I looked at them for a year and I spun, spun them around and looked at them and I would try different iterations, tying a fly this way and that way. And eventually I said, hey, the only way I'm actually going to get the right profile and body shape is by, you know, laminating foam together and then sculpting it. And so my, the, the Moorish hopper was sculpted foam. And, and then, you know, I basically just lashed that foam onto a hook shank with a little, you know, slit to, to hold it on there. And, when I fished my initial prototypes, I was really happy. And when I, you know, shared those flies with other people, they were they were like, "Wow, that's, that's, that thing's got a lot of game." And when I submitted it initially to Idlewild, I was pretty proud of myself. And usually, every time I design a new fly, I'm like, "Oh man, this one's really going to be awesome," you know. And and usually that's not the case. But uh, uh, in this one, I had a really good feeling about it. I was like, "This thing's going to rock the boat. It's going to it's going to it's going to sell." And people are going to catch fish with it. And blah blah blah. And they looked at it and they they rejected it. They said, "No, we don't we don't like it. We 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 don't think that's going to sell." And 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 one of the great lines, which I'll attribute to. Uh, maybe that was to Chris, maybe it was his business partner, but someone said to me, well, you know, I think foam is dead. And I, I, w- I was pissed and, and, and I was pissed enough that they didn't accept it, that I didn't tie any new submissions for two years. And I sort of just sulked. And at the end of that two year period, I was like, you know what? I'm sending it back to him. And I sent it back to him. I said, I think you should reconsider and that time they did. And when they started producing those flies in their factories uh, in the Philippines, they did a great job. I mean, uh, I'm always impressed how some factories can can tie, you know, they just get better at it than, than I ever got because they do it with such regularity. And so they released a great product and the Moorish Hopper went on to become the best-selling fly of of all of Idlewild's patterns, and and it was it was singularly responsible for half of all of their royalty fly sales, and so it was a it was a big hit, and foam was not dead, and uh, and, and so yeah, that was just kind of a, a fun story that that came full circle from rejection into to acceptance what, what year was that when in your in the your timeline when you when you got that acceptance oh, i don't know that must have been uh i don't know maybe it was around uh 2010 oh, oh, or something okay. like 2010. that yeah yeah gotcha yeah so maybe something like that so you're well uh, into uh fly when did flywater uh when was that founded or started it was uh we're a little over twenty years oh, wow. old yeah, yeah. now. We released yeah, we released our first catalog in, in That's right. two thousand and we really started the company in, in, in ninety nine. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So you got a good yeah, I mean you got a good chunk. That's the thing. You you look back, you've got a huge I mean, you've been in the industry for a long time now, right? I mean do you, what what do you say? You're kinda of like thirty 
five yeah, years. Yeah, my yeah. whole my whole adult life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so more than uh, more than half of my years. I'm 54 years old yeah. now, and yeah, I sort of entered the industry space at about 21, huh. and I'd like to say I'm. I think I'm absolutely unemployable outside <laughs> of the fly fishing space. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And, uh, it's, uh, it's really cool. I've uh, had so many different conversations with people from all ends of the spectrum and I love hearing the different stories, but I think in fly fishing, yeah, I think it comes back to that. You know, you just kind of, pe- people love this space cause it's a lot of good people and maybe there isn't billions of dollars. I don't even know if there's a billion dollar company, but, but there's a lot of good people, right? Do, do you feel, I mean, what do you love most about the fly fishing space? Is that, you know, is it something like that or what keeps you going? Well, you know, I mean, I I remain a very uh, engaged and passionate angler, so I got a lot of time for being on the water, and I've got a lot of time for my home waters. Uh, and and you know, one of the hard things about doing fly water is that it, it really took away from my ability to fish close to home. You know, if I had you know a wife and two kids, and you know would work a lot of hours and then, you know, I get to go on these super cool business trips to, you know, far off interesting fisheries and then to come home and, you know, tell my family that I, you know, want to go fishing locally, you know, that, that was pretty hard to, that's been hard to do. And I've done it and I've, I've got to fish locally, but like I say, I've got a lot of time for that. So staying in the fishing space uh, is, is, is first and foremost, you know, based on, me still really loving fishing and you know catching fish isn't isn't always my top priority anymore i'm a real passionate photographer and so yeah being in the outdoor space and you know just getting an excuse to to go on these little you know mini adventures you know that's 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 a lot of it and obviously i have a, a lot of folks that I know in the fly fishing space and, and, you know, many of whom I, I haven't had a lot of time to personally fish with, but, you know, I'm still, I still want to take advantage of all of that. But a lot of my fishing has been work related and, uh, and, and I've got a lot of gas in the tank for that. And again, I have got a lot of gas in the tank for, for personally fishing and experimenting with flies and, trying things out so yeah i'm 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 first and foremost i'm a a very passionate and engaged angler i I love fishing yeah that's great yeah that's uh yeah i totally i mean i think that's the thing you've been able to make your uh, business you know i've been it's it's allowed you to get out and and travel which i think is part of the thing with the fly fish at least for i think a lot of people as they the more you get into it you realize yeah it's not necessarily the number of fish you catch but i mean traveling that's what i love the fact that there's that opportunity to travel and meet you know, local cultures and, you know, people from around the world and just experience, you know what I mean? Like that's for me, what I'm excited about for for my next 10 or 20 years. Exactly. And, and, you know, I'm still super excited about that. And, and, you know, and, and, and to some degree, I've even spun 180 on that where I go, man, you know, I've got, I've had the opportunity to go, are near everywhere fishing and and so i've been around the block and back in terms of exotic fisheries and if someone said well kenny you know you can't ever travel internationally again but you can fish three times as much within a four-hour radius of where you live you know what do you think i'd go "Uh, yeah i'll take that deal you know i 
I uh, I love you know, where I live in Southern Oregon is is really interesting, and there's uh, you know it, it's it's a place where I drive in you know all four directions to fish, and I've got year-round opportunities. And uh, and there's a lot out there. And so I, I love the local fishing, and I do love traveling to fish. I mean, there's so much great stuff out there, and there's still lots of stuff I'd like to see. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not as bent on fishing internationally uh, on a personal basis uh, as I as I have been in the past because I've, I've had that opportunity and uh, yeah I could I could swing it right back to the home waters and go you know what I really I really want to dial in my you know my my understanding of some local fisheries and you know there's going places and that's one thing and then there's really knowing places and that's a different type of of knowledge and a different type of satisfaction and i I, i'd like to have more of that in my my future yeah but you know the other thing that really keeps me engaged in the space is you know the customers that i get to deal with at flywater travel you know by and large they're they're such a pleasure right i mean these are smart successful passionate folks and so you know i have all these people that i consider really close friends many of whom i've never met face to face and you know they're from different walks of life and different uh, you know political and religious beliefs and some of them are you know overseas and they're from all different states and so that's that's a lot of fun and then uh, you know, the same is true of, of these lodge owners and outfitters and guides. You know, there's some great folks out there. And when I'm, I get to develop a, a solid working relationship with people like that, it typically develops into a friendship as well. And, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of people out there that I'd know that I'd that I'd love to spend time with outside of their business interests and my business interests and you know how just do something a little more casual together moving forward and and obviously I love the opportunity to to be with them in a true business setting uh, meaning you know visiting them at their lodger operation or traveling with guests to different places uh, you know I've got a, a nice uh, posse of folks that I can call on for personal hosted trips who are just a ton of fun. So, yeah, it's hard to to really tire that. I mean, I've I've got a, a I've got a great job and an incredible network of both consumers and outfitters that I really enjoy. That's cool. Yeah, I love that quote you you said the uh, knowing places and going places. You know, it's like the you know the guides, right? The guides are the ones they definitely know their their place. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm kind of more like I said, I'm more on the going places, so I might have to uh, hit you up and take your uh, take your place for some of the <laughs> the travel you're not doing. Yeah, well, yeah, you bet, you bet. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think I wanted to hit on just because you know we have a lot of people that listen to this and they love the the tips and tricks. So I wanted to go back to the the fly design just before we get out of here, and maybe mm-hmm. just first the. The Moorish Hopper. I mean, I'll put a link in the show notes to what that looks like. But can you describe that pattern just quickly? What what it's uh, what it kind of does somebody who doesn't have it in front of them? Well, yeah, it's sort of a, a two tone foam fly that that really uh, is is cut out of foam uh, with the exact outline of a grasshopper, and then there's rubber legs attached to the outside of it. 
and a little eyeball painted on it. But, you know, what, what I think is interesting about that fly and one of the ways I really like to look at fly designs is, is if I hold that fly up, uh, against a bright background and I get a black silhouette of it and I spin it around on, on, you know, a a number of different axes that, that that fly has a really true silhouette and really true proportions. And I think for me, that's a really important criteria. It also happens with the foam to have a really similar density to a natural hopper. So it sort of lands with the same, uh, with the same mass, makes a similar type of splat. It happens to float very similarly in the surface film. You know, it's not riding super high or riding super low. And like I say, it just has a really great silhouette and profile. And and that's the thing that uh, that I think a lot of people miss is what is this black and white silhouetted profile and how does that compare to naturals? And, you know, in a, you know, we have an assumption that, oh, you know, does a cone head marabou muddler look like a sculpin and i'm going to go no i mean i can tell i can envision its its silhouette you know a sculpin has a as a broad round flat head it doesn't have a cone and it doesn't taper back into trim deer hair and then have a big blown out collar and then the big thing i see is on you know a lot of wet flies in particular is you see these sort of fanned out brush like backs where it's the real shape of nature is more like, you know, for a bait fish is more like a teardrop, you know, it's got, a, it's, it, it contiguously tapers towards the rear. And so, you know, I'm always looking at, at things like that and fly design, or I look at, okay, you know, hey, nymphs have six legs. They don't have 16 legs, uh, you know, so people overdress things uh, constantly or, you know, people think that a salmon fly, you know, uh, to tie that they can have a great big bushy hackle in the front. Well, it can, but if you really look at the silhouette of a salmon fly, you know, a salmon fly has a really skinny, narrow head, and a golden stone fly has a, a broader, huskier head on it. And so, I really take the time to look at uh, at what naturals look like and and there was a book that was really influential when i was a kid and you know i was a i was a crazy fly tire you know starting at about age 10 and and i went to flight fly time competitions as a kid like my my local club the diablo valley fly fishermen they would send me to to, to fly time competitions at the fly, at the conclave that was put on by the federation of fly fishers and stuff and and so yeah, I used to be in casting and tying competitions as a as a kid, uh, and most of this was based off of this mentorship by this guy Andy Puyans, who was a a, a well known and 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 in many cases notorious uh, character in the Bay Area, who was very much liked by his his devotees and followers, and and also very much disliked by others. You know, you're sort of in or out with this guy, and and I was lucky enough to be in and learn a lot from him but you know i remember he sold me a book that that i still think is one of the great books out there which is uh 
Dave Whitlock's Guide to Aquatic Trout Foods. And, you know, Dave is, is uh, I don't know Dave Whitlock, but I have mad respect for him as a, as a true, you know, Renaissance angler. And, and his illustrations are, are the best. And his fly designing abilities are extraordinary. And, and so, you know, really looking at line drawings of what a stonefly nymph looks like or what a swimming caddis pupa looks like, you know, that had a deep impression. And when you you get a good artist to move something into a, a black and white or a line style drawing, um, you learn a lot from that. And so, uh, so, yeah, I like studying things when they're sort of broken down into those simple elements of of their proportions and not getting, you know, blinded by the colors. You know, if you really look at the shape of how an adult mayfly sits on the water, it's so radically different than, than how mayflies are designed. And, and so, you know, like my little uh, mayday adult mayfly, you know, is, is getting closer to this, but, you know, if if the way a mayfly sits on the water, it has a very broad footprint, and uh, and then you know its wing really towers above the center of its body, and the uh, you know the back of its body and its tail rarely, if ever, even touches the water. So really, you're just looking at this big footprint with this uh, you know sitting on top of the water. And and a wing with a really pronounced silhouette, sort of bent back. And so, you know, like when I designed the the May Day, I was like, okay, I want this to have a big footprint. I want to try to get the hackle barbs, unlike a parachute, to extend down beneath the plane of the belly of the fly to support the fly more or less above the water. And I want to have the tail. I want to have the body be really short, and I want to have the tail sort of push up as a support network. Uh, and, you know, if it sinks down, yeah, it might look like a shuck, but, you know, really I want to have a really short round footprint because that's how duns are on the water. Obviously a spinner's something different entirely, but, uh, like I say, we have these assumptions of how flies should be designed and how insects behave and, you know, really stepping back and spending a lot of time observing and evaluating the true natural before you begin designing, you know, that's been uh, a technique that I've been using and I hope refining over my career. That's that's cool. Yeah. The So do you think the exact, um, you know, for dry flies is more of an exact fly tying uh you know, doing it more exact versus say like the nymphs where the, you know, like Euro nymphs were great. And there's some of those don't even look like bugs. Do you think with dry flies, it's more important to be exact match or there's some flies that are kind of more suggestive? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, how people fish is the most important thing and, and, and proper technique and presentation matter. And then, you know, I'd say that, that the, the hierarchy of import is, is size shape, color. And realism isn't that important, but if you think about how a mayfly 
sits on the water and what that looks like from beneath. And, you know, if you've got, you know, let's say, you know, you know, a classic Adams with a really long tail extending that's on the water, you know, the profile, the, the, the impression that that's making on the water is oftentimes two and a half times longer than that of a natural. And so that's just a type of mindfulness, right? And, and so I'm not saying it needs to be realistic, but it's it's basically a, a sort of an engineering challenge, I think, in terms of dry flies. It, it, it's not like, you know, I'm, I am impressed by people who can tie ultra-realistic flies, but I'm also totally repulsed by them. And I don't think they have any place in the box, right? And so, so yeah, to me, uh, I am much more interested in engineering than I am in being ultra-realistic. And so, okay, yeah, does it have the right density? Does it have the right silhouette? Does it leave an accurate footprint, if you will, on the water surface. And those things are really important for me in in dry fly fishing. You know, the Moorish mouse is not at all realistic. It doesn't look like a mouse at all. And people tie mice that are super cool looking look just like mice and, and, and that's awesome. But you know, the objective with the Moorish mouse was I want something that I can cast on a five way. You know, that was first. And so I want to have maximum profile. I want to have minimal materials. Uh, and I, and in an engineering sense, I want something that doesn't get waterlogged and that can stay on the surface in, in fast or slow currents. And that, that, uh, can, you know, perform throughout the course of a day without becoming mushy, saturated, blah, blah, blah. And, and so, so yeah, to me, uh, the engineering elements are much more important than the realistic elements. Perfect. Perfect. And do you have with your dry flies, you mentioned there's like maybe 40 over the years you've had, do you, or not, that's all flies, but do you have uh, maybe a top, um, I don't know if you have 10 or so flies or you could talk about that you'd put in your list of your, your top go-to fly. You've mentioned a few of them, the, the, the Moorish uh, may. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, you sort of have a yeah emphasis on the dry fly fishing, you know, in, in terms of, Dry fly fishing, obviously, you know, uh, the hoppers are a real solid pattern. Um, I do, there's a lot of things I like about the mayday, which is a mayfly done. It's a difficult fly to tie properly for the consumer and unfortunately for the factories at times. Uh, but it's, uh, but when that fly is tied properly, I really, I really like that one. It's uh, it's it's very discreet. It's very effective, uh, and so yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, I'm a big fan of the mouse for you know that specialized application. Um, you know, I have a adult salmon fly that I think is is especially the the Moorish uh, fluttering salmon fly is is a really really solid pattern. And, you know, I feel bad for the factory that they have to tie it. You know, that one's pretty elaborate and hard to tie and I don't want to ever tie it again, but, but it's a, it's a cool pattern. And there's, there's a, a still and a fluttering version and the same in the, uh, there's a golden stone pattern that I have, uh, uh that is, uh, is really a great and effective pattern that I'm quite fond of. And then, 
you know, I also have a, a steelhead skater called a palm skater, which is, uh, uh, I think, a very well-engineered fly that performs properly when when tied properly. And, uh, yeah, I like that one. You know, I've just, uh, just released some new... Uh, steelhead skaters to Umqua it'll be a little while before they're out but you know I've been doing a lot of tying in in uh on tubes and and so I've got what's you know called a uh, I've got a something coming out called a hitched tube skater where uh in a Scandinavian style you can put the leader as opposed to putting it straight through the front of the tube there's a little hole in the bottom of the tube on the front third of the hook and when you you put the leader through there and then thread it on uh man it really skitters it, it's like it it's like the riffling hitch is built into the fly and uh i'm pretty excited to have those come out and those will be a lot of fun because you'll be able to put whatever size hook you like and so if yeah if you're fishing for uh you know a klamath river steelhead uh, you know you might choose to put a a number 6 or a number 8 trailing hook on there and if you're up in BC you know you might put a 2 or a 4 on there and so you can really mix and match for whatever you're chasing and put the hook on there that's that's going to do the least amount of damage without straightening out that's it awesome yeah that's uh, and we didn't even uh, we probably won't have time here to to talk about skaters maybe Maybe down the line, if we can get you back on, we'll, we'll talk more steelhead. Um, but um, I feel I feel pretty good. I mean, hearing hearing your story here, I mean, it, as far as the dry flies, do you want to leave everybody with? You know, I, I guess we try to dig into a couple of tips. But do you have a tip if somebody's thinking about tying um, dry flies when they're sitting down at the vise? Anything? I know that's kind of a an arbitrary question, but anything come to mind to help somebody maybe design a cool fly? Well, like I say, before you design a fly spend a lot of time looking at the natural and and also you know thinking about how the natural behaves on the water but but I think you know it, it to me you know it sort of goes back to you know basic academics and 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 spend a lot of time understanding the question before you go out and try to expound with an answer. And I would consider the fly an answer. You know, a pattern is an answer to a question or a, an answer to a problem. And really, yeah, understand the question and then then create the answer. And, uh, and a lot of people just jump right in to the answer phase uh, and, and, and that leads to what I think is, is, is poor fly design. That's right. That's, and you mentioned uh, Dave Whitlock, who I had on in a past episode. I'll put mm. a link to that one as well. He, you know, obviously the, the Dave's Hopper, you know, is a, um, you know, I think he might have said that's one of his most, you know, maybe his most famous uh, Hopper or famous pattern or whatever. But I mean, compared to the Dave, do you know what the Dave? Do you know what that one? Comparing your fly to that one, I mean, what what are the, the talking about the answer? How do those get to a different answer? Or, or yeah, know, well, I mean, the Bruce Hopper uh, was without question the finest grasshopper of the time, uh, and 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 it was a really innovative pattern. And you know, Dave, you know, when when that was tied right, you know, he was integrating with deer hair some some really nuanced 
shapes to the head. You know, he was he was sculpting that deer hair head in a very particular way, and his laid back wing was neat. But uh, you know, it was also uh, you know a natural deer hair head with a yellow belly, and you know, and and the palmered trimmed hackle on the belly. You know, that's great. There's nothing like that on a grasshopper, right? They don't, they don't have anything like that, or they don't have a, you know, the the, you know, the grasshopper's wings lay lay in line to have a completely pointed back on the fly, and, and you know, he had some interesting trigger mechanisms, like putting a little red tail that was bent down. You know, he did he did some cool stuff, um, but that was that was and is a great fly, and, and you know him getting into the whole craft of, you know, knotting legs and things like that. So he, he brought a ton of game into that fly. And, uh, and, you know, the fun thing is, uh, there's still always room to re-envision things. You know, my, the, the Moorish hopper is a, in many ways, a far simpler fly, but it achieves yeah the the end goal i think is even more effective or the end product is an even more effective one and uh, and you know it's thanks to guys like whitlock uh, and you know their drawings and their observations and what they've already put forth for us to learn on that you know i'm able to to come up with something that's uh, that's equally interesting that's cool that's cool. Uh, all right, Ken. Well, that's, I think that's all I have for you. Um, you know, as always there, there's a, a lot of stuff I could have dug into, but I'm, I'm glad you were able to, to stick around and, and share the, uh, the fly water story, which is an amazing one and, uh, and a little on your fly tying. So, um, yeah, in the next, uh, next six months or so, anything you want to give a shout out to you have new with fly water or anything you have going? You know, uh, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're working full tilt on a completely, new website that'll be a, a real interesting and powerful and uh, and user friendly one and so we're really grinding through that right now and uh, you know revamping these massive photo libraries and uh, overhauling and editing all of our existing text and uh, and so yeah we're we're digging in deep and uh, I hope that uh, and that by February, that the uh, outside world will be able to surf around on that. There you go. Well, this is, uh, and I'm not sure exactly when this is going to publish, but I think it'll probably be somewhere closer to that. Um, so this it'll probably be ready to go by the time this gets going. Um, awesome. Well, hey, thanks for all your time. I appreciate what you do and all your contributions to, you know, fly tying and, and travel and, I mean, everything. So uh, definitely thanks for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure. I really appreciate it, and I uh, hope we can talk again soon. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 181. I would love if you can leave a quick rating and review for the show. Go to wetflyswing.com slash love, uh, and it'll redirect you to a page where you can leave a quick review. That would be super helpful. And before we get out of here today, I wanted to do a quick little summary of what Ken uh, covered as far as tips on designing dry fly patterns. This goes back to some of his tips on what he does when designing. So number one, look for gaps in the market. So that's one thing. If you're in, in the field, you definitely need to look for gaps. Number two, look for a true silhouette. He noted on his fly, he kind of had it uh, there on his desk for a while and um, at least the hopper. So think of that silhouette. Number three, 
Um, try to get true proportions. So again, not exact matches, but true proportions is important. Number four, look for similar uh, density as the natural. So I think his hopper with the foam definitely has a similar density. Number five, uh, floats in the surface like a natural. Another important thing to be thinking about. Number six, maximum profile with minimal materials. This is for the Moorish mouse. He noted that, um, you know, um, big profile, minimum, uh, minimal materials is important, kind of like the um, some of the intruder stuff. Number seven, doesn't get waterlogged. Um, so again, going back to the Moorish mouse, he's thinking about design and how to not get that thing so it's like a heavy uh, piece of, you know, uh, <laughs> whatever, chucking. Um, number eight, before you design a fly, look at the natural. So again, just reminding you to look at the natural bug. What are we looking at here? Number nine, on the same line, spend time looking at the behavior of the naturals in the water. So how are they functioning and how are you imitating that? And number 10, understand the question before developing the pattern. So the answer, the pattern is the answer, but think of the question. What are you trying to answer? Um, so that's a wrap. That's uh, ten, uh, Ken's top 10 here for today. I hope you enjoyed that. You can leave a message for me if you are enjoying these uh, little summaries. Uh, Dave at wetflyswing.com. I want to thank you again for checking out the show. Looking forward to catching up with you soon. Hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.